We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. My desire this morning is to finish up the uh, Spiritual Discipline series, part three of it. Uh, but before we do that, I thought I would ask uh, a question or two. Um, thinking about your church attendance, your church participation, uh, it occurred to me to ask this question. Okay, you're here now, but there's a reason that you're here, and there is a purpose for you being here. So think of it kind of in a chronological fashion. You're here. What is it that caused you to come here? So thank you, John. Why, why are you here in terms of the prior? And then why are you here in terms of what you hoped that is accomplished today? Are you following me? So think about that for a moment. Ask yourself those questions. I am here because, and I am here to fill in the blank. I'm here because, fill in the blank. I am here to fill in the blank. What are the blanks? Don't tell me what, I'm, what you know that I want to hear. I want you to answer the question honestly in your heart. What are the reasons? I am here because, and I am here to accomplish what? What's the blank? Amen. So I'm here because I want to be with God's people. I get to be with God's people. Yes. For how long, who knows, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Becky's given us a because. She desires to come and be with the saints. And if you couldn't hear that, she's given us a two. That is to learn more of the word and to become more like the Lord. Pretty good answers, I would say. Would anybody add anything to those answers? Not, not what I want to hear, but what the real answer is in your heart. I come because I'm supposed to come, or I come because I have to come. That's true for some people. Uh, I'm you know, coming here to, and the fill in the blank remains blank. You know what I mean? Like, is that what you expect to happen? Like, when you come, I'm expecting God to do nothing today in my life. Is that how you feel? Or is that how you practically are? Yes, Ben. Uh, 
the saints in whom is all my delight. So I come because I delight in the saints. Ben brought that to our attention a few weeks ago at men's prayer and mentioned it a time or two uh, around that time as well. Very excellent. I delight in the saints. You think about the um, think about David, for example, how he desired to be at the house of the Lord. So, um, you know, this is a diagnostic question, pair of questions, I guess, both blanks here, pair of questions for you. Do you really desire to be with God's people? I come because I want to. I come in order to accomplish this. Now, there's, there's learning the word. Uh, there's being, becoming more like Christ. There's something else that somebody might add on the I come to fill in the blank, that blank. Anybody have any other thoughts? I come to worship. Okay, there's more than that, but I come to worship to be a blessing to others. Let me, let me shape that just a little bit. To be a blessing to others by serving and loving them. Yes? So, you know, if I, if I come to church too, and the fill-in-the-blank is all directed here, I'm consuming, but some of the two needs to be directed out, right? You with me? Yeah. What, I'm, what we're doing here is kind of going back to first principles and asking ourselves, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, if you don't examine your life and ask that, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, you just kind of follow along, and, and I know it's easy to do that just because maybe you've determined some of these reasons or thoughts before years ago, and you just carry on now. Like, I already figured out that I want to come because I desire to be with God's people. I want to become more like Christ. I want to learn more of the Word. I want to worship. I want to serve others. Maybe you figured all that out, and, but you haven't thought about it for a little while. I mean, you, you probably do more intentional planning for uh, your vacation or your budget or your uh, work SWOT analysis or whatever, you know, if you know what I'm talking about. Do you do more thinking about those things than you do about the most important association you have in your whole life with the church? with God, with the Lord. So just some thoughts for you there. Anybody else have any additional ones? Ben. Okay, stir up one another to love and good works. Hebrews 10. Yep. So that's, that's, a, uh, that's an outward, uh, you know, I'm coming to church to do this, but also that's going to be bidirectional, right? Because when you're here, you might be reminded, oh, yeah, there's somebody that I have in my life that I need to do a good work to. I'm, I'm going to stir you up to do something to bless your neighbor or something like that, to bless a family member, to, uh, to challenge you to... Um, be encouraged, to encourage you. You know, you come probably, I, I'm sure you don't come to church every Sunday just so 
you know, blessed and built up from the world and all the things that you hear out there. It's just so encouraging, isn't it? It's almost, you can't stand there's so much encouragement out there. No, you probably beat down a little bit or sometimes, whatever. Discouraged? Yeah, we can encourage one another. Um, So file that one away. Think about that today, perhaps in days to come. I have another question for you, and I, I don't have any notes on this. It's just stuff that has come to my mind and attention. Uh, this is kind of an maybe odd. haven't talked about this before ever, I think, um, but it's been in my mind for some time. The church is a nonprofit ecclesiastical corporation, technically in terms of Michigan law. Okay, it's not. It's not that. Here, I mean that's that's a construction of modern law, but as a nonprofit ecclesiastical corporation, we have one big benefit from the government, and that is tax exemption. Okay, we talked about that not too long ago with uh, regarding housing and property tax exemption. So uh, we're also exempt from income taxes, at least for most things. There's some particular technicalities that you have to be careful of, but um, you know we're not like paying taxes on interest income like you do when you get your interest statement from your bank. That's income that you have to pay tax on, right? So um, why does the government do that? Why do they give us a tax exemption? No idea. That's one answer. <laughs> ben? Ben is talking about a co-ownership model and a re, and a double taxation kind of issue, and that's but that's different than a corporation. A corporation is also kind of an organization or group of people. I see. Yeah, I have to think about that. I haven't thought about it in that way before. Who else has some thought on why it is? Okay, so so a charity was considered good and to tax exempt it would be encouraging it would be. Um, subsidizing it so you get more of it kind of a thing. Okay, what else? Nothing else? Yes. Yeah, so Anne has said freedom of assembly. Christie has mentioned uh, part of the separation of church and state. And yeah, historically, it's been seen as a... Uh, in, taxation has been seen as an encroachment on religious liberty uh, and a violation of the freedom of assembly, freedom to worship uh, kinds of parts of the, const- of the Bill of Rights. And uh, which are part of the Constitution, I guess we could say, amendments. But um, maybe some constitutional scholar could weigh in. Uh, Mr. Newhook, since you've been at Hillsdale, that's your department, okay? <laughs> so, um, so those are all factors that are involved in uh, cons- you know, considering the tax-exempt status. I, I, I have concern that on two lines, one, if, if tax exemption is removed, that will force a lot of churches to close because they're barely making it now. And so if they have to pay property tax on their building, on homes that they own, on income and stuff like that, then it's going to be a, a extreme hardship. So that would be one angle of concern. The other angle of concern is, let's suppose that the uh, government says your donations to a church are not now tax-exempt, uh, are any longer tax-exempt. 
So what do we do then? Are donations going to drop like a rock because your, ta your donations aren't tax exempt? Well, there are two reasons. Uh, there are several reasons, I suppose, I could say why that should definitely not be the case. Number one, uh, you don't donate to the church for a tax exemption. You donate to the church because God has instructed you to give generously, sacrificially, uh, material things to support the spiritual work of the church. Um, secondly, in practical terms, most people today don't itemize, at least most people in the you know, kind of regular, uh, regular hoi polloi types <laughs> don't itemize their deductions, right? So if your standard deduction is whatever it is these days, I forget the number, but it's way up there after Trump, Trump's tax well, reforms, we'll call them, uh, doubling that exemption or deduction or whatever it is called. Uh, most people don't uh, get, have more itemized expenses than that, so that just the donations come along with all their other expenses just come under that number, and it's just it's a wash. So you don't end up actually doing anything with the exemption for yourself. So it basically is gone already. See? So... So that's about tax exemption. Now, we can talk more about that and, and, and on some of those details, but my question leading, this is all leading up to my question. My question is this, um, specifically to Kevin's point. If a nonprofit is, uh, like the tax exemption is seen as in part because the nonprofit is doing some good in the community, Are we holding up our end of the bargain? Are we doing good in the community that's worth the community looking at us and saying, well, sure, I mean, they're, 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 they're pulling their weight. That group of people is worthy of a tax exemption. I mean, the taxes go to repair the road, which Bedford is going to be repaired this summer. Uh, pay the city, you know, safety, fire, police, all those sorts of things. Um, are, we, are we doing anything that makes it like we're worthy of that, we're worthwhile? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to argue for a social gospel a position at all. You know that we're not for that. But I'm just, it's just a question that's come into my mind. Um, are we doing anything that, I mean, we're not, we don't get a tax exemption with the expectation that we give an exchange, that we're doing something else in, in, ter in legal terms. You know what I'm saying? There's kind of a generalized expectation. In fact, in terms of social gospel, it's become the, the eyes of the secular society look at the church and say, well, the church's job is to help people spiritually and give them stuff, Right? But that's not what the Bible teaches us, not certainly in priority order to do. Um, you know, the, the church is expected to do soup kitchens and uh, house the homeless and all kinds of other things. Uh, but are we holding up our end of the bargain? Are we good citizens, in other words, as a group of people, as a church? What do you think? We ought to be, but are we? 
So the teaching, the moral teachings you're saying? Moral teachings, okay? Right. That's right. Right. Bribery in other countries is rampant, but we teach that is not correct, you know, for instance. Um, I, I have offered uh, various things at times in the, uh, I don't think this is even on, why we have this here. Um, you know, like uh, on our website, I've said to folks, uh, advertise there, if you need a funeral, we'll do a funeral. That's a free service. And I say on there, there's no cost. If, and people ask me, what do you want, what, what do you charge? Nothing. If you want to give a donation to the church or pay an honorarium to me, that's fine. That's your, you give whatever you think. But there's no charge for that. And we've had a number of funerals here in this room during the middle of the week when most of you aren't here where, you know, somebody's passed and they don't have anybody to, um, as a minister. I did one funeral for a fellow who, was, who passed away uh, 80 years ago. Uh, memorial service for him out at uh, one of the cemeteries out in Ypsilanti. His name was Richard Stryker, I think. I don't know if you remember that. It was in the newspaper back some years ago. Uh, funeral home in Celine asked me to do the service for that. Um, Highland Cemetery? Yeah, that's right. That's the name of it. I forget. So that's a service that we provide. Counseling. We've offered counseling to people, marriage counseling. Now, the thing is, most people don't take this up. But there is a great value to having an, a, 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 a place where a troubled marriage could come to get advice and help to point them in a good direction because for society, there's value in maintaining a home instead of breaking up a home, okay? And that's what we teach here. So it obviously shouldn't be the case that the divorce rate in the church is the same as it is in society, but that's what they say, I think, because the definition of church is too broad in the, in the secular, or um, what do you call it, demographic studies, but be that as it may. Uh, what other things? Preaching the gospel to the lost. So not just internally, but externally. Yeah, right? working with the children, yeah, art fair outreach, these kinds of outwardly focused events. But see, the world doesn't look at those as being monetarily valuable. They see, many people see those as a, as a hassle. We have these Christians telling us that we're sinners and we need a savior. You know, no solicitation, no religious people come to my, you know, I don't want them to come to my door. Um. As a, as a citizen in this country, you individually, are you doing something to make yourself useful to the society? Not just generally, like you say, well, I hold a job and raise a family. Everybody does that. Everybody should do that. There are some people who don't do that, the entitlement types that want to get their welfare and all of that. So we, we urge people to, to work, not to be lazy, right? So there are a lot of value, there is a lot of value that we provide to the community, but it may not be weighed monetarily in the same uh, amount by the culture. 
I just simply uh, pose the question to remind us that we do have a responsibility toward outsiders. Do good to the household of faith. Do good to all men, actually, and then also, but especially to the household of faith. So we should be we should be doing that, and the church should be a beacon. It should be a, a a resting point. It should be a place of help to the community. What's happened today, though, is that there. Uh, the devil is using people to build up structures that make that less um, likely, less possible to happen. For instance, passing a law that says you can't uh, convert or you can't offer conversion therapy to a gay person or that you can't uh, call somebody by their given name and pronoun. That's an issue, by the way, of course, you know, with the recent law passing or almost passing, I don't know where it's at now, but, um, you know, we believe that parents have authority over their children. So if you as a parent give, you know, uh, Jimmy his name, I should call Jimmy Jimmy. Otherwise, I dishonor you as a parent because you're the one that gave him that name. He wants to call himself Jenny. No, he's Jimmy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, to try to criminalize that, and so they try to push the church into a, the church broadly speaking, all believers and people of common sense, into a corner to criminalize their thinking or their speech, and then what do you do? Some of you are being asked to do this in your workplaces, aren't you? If you don't do it, you will lose your job. You've seen the stories online, right? A teacher doesn't do what doesn't do what they're supposed to do, or a person at a workplace or whatever. My my thing is we got to push back on all that. Very hard, very hard. But uh, you know we do have a responsibility to the community, and uh, we need to be of some we need to be of some earthly utility, <laughs> some earthly value, not just kind of you know us four no more. All right, let me pause with uh, those thoughts. Take you to uh, the. F- final part of the study on spiritual disciplines, and we have limited time uh, this morning remaining, but let me just touch on a few of these. The first two weeks that we went over things, we talked about uh, Bible intake, um, prayer, uh, you know, uh, those sorts of things. I think we mentioned evangelism back here as well, Uh, did we? Yeah, we did. I was on the wrong page. Serving and evangelism. Uh, This time, there are a couple of issues that may be a little bit of a surprise to you that uh, Whitney calls out as spiritual disciplines, but they were profitable for me as I thought about them. Um, This first one is not. uh, It's stewardship. Stewardship is a spiritual discipline, and he writes a whole chapter on two main things, the disciplined use of time and the disciplined use of what you always think of when you think of stewardship, money. So the disciplined use of time and the disciplined use of money. Uh, redeem the time because why? The days are evil. I might also add the days are few. The days are few. Uh, a lot of us are looking at the runway left and we're saying, yeah, the fence is coming soon. <laughs> we're not... We don't have as much runway ahead of us as we have back there. You know what I'm saying? If you're 50, you're not likely to live to 100. 
I'd like to live to 100, but uh, if it's good years, <laughs> right? Um, use the time wisely because the days are evil. Use the time wisely because it's preparation for eternity. Time is short and passing. It's a vapor. Your remaining time is uncertain. I mean, your fence may be coming up tomorrow, right? Your runway may be over. So you don't want to use your time unwisely if that's the case. You're accountable to God for your time, he says. That's true. Time is so easily lost. Also, you uh, value time more near your death than you did when you were born or when you were 10 years old and you thought you had the rest of eternity ahead of you. Um, And you'll recognize the value of time more pointedly then, and I think what he's arguing is you'll recognize the value of time even more in heaven. That time that God gave us here will look more precious to you even though it may have had its difficulties. And then the disciplined use of money. The disciplined use of money. It's a, it's a freeing thing to recognize that you are a steward only of the things that you have. God owns everything you own, right? God owns everything you own. All your cars, houses, clothes, gadgets, technology, whatever. Um, he owns all that stuff. Also, in the disciplined use of money category, Whitney puts giving is worship. Giving is worship. Giving reflects faith in God's provision. Giving should be sacrificial and generous. We mentioned that earlier. Giving respects spiritual trustworthiness. You know, he who is faithful in a little, faithful in much. Um, Giving is motivated properly by, he says, love, not legalism. You know, whenever there's a requirement to give, no, that's not good. You know, uh, churches that do that, so-called churches. Giving should also be willing, should be thankful, should be cheerful. That's a way to to be disciplined in your use of finances. Uh, Giving is an appropriate response to real needs, he adds, and should be planned and systematic. That's a disciplined part of it, planned and systematic. Um, Generous. And, uh, you know, he says in general, this isn't a a kind of a mechanical thing, but in general, as the Lord says in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down and overflowing, the Lord says. It's a general truth, not a specific one in every case. Uh, You know, if, if if you don't give out of what God has given to you, why should God give you more? But sometimes we find it's true that we give and then God gives us more to give. May God give you enough for every good work so that when you give to do a good work, he gives you more so you can do more good work. That's a part of stewardship. Uh, My grandmother always said, we always gave 10% to the church. And God always helped us, even if it was a tight time in our budget. And that was a principle that, that was... She probably told me that 30, 40 years ago. He's been with the Lord now since 2003, 20 years ago. Um, but Or 2004, maybe. Yeah. So, interesting. So, application, he asks, are you prepared for the end of time? 
Are you using time as God would have you to use it? And then are you willing to accept God's principles of giving? I know we're rushing through that. A whole sermon or two or three could be given on the uh, stewardship of finances and the stewardship of time. Now, the next discipline that he mentioned is this one, fasting. Fasting. And I said, well, I'm going to be interested in this one because I'm often hungry. Uh, <laughs> so what do I do about this? Um, he says, he, he explains it this way. Fasting is the abstinence from food, but not water, for spiritual purposes. It's the abstinence from food, not water, for spiritual purposes. Note it's not for health purposes. Everybody's today talking about what? Intermittent fasting. Okay? That's not Bible fasting. Okay? That's health fasting. Uh, with supposed <clears throat> health um, benefits. Fasting, he says, is expected in the Bible, but not commanded. Now, I find it interesting because if you look, kind of carefully look at it, there are very few references to fasting after the Gospels. Have you thought about that? Does Paul instruct you to fast? There's an assumption that there's some fasting, perhaps in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in some text, some of the textual variants there, I believe, uh, you, when you have prayer and fasting in the early part of 1 Corinthians 7, uh, maybe a couple of other places, the book of Acts mentions after the fast was passed, uh, it was dangerous for them to go out on the Mediterranean because of the weather, that sort of thing. So there's an assumption there, and it's, it, it's all throughout the Old Testament. Fasting he says, is to be done for a purpose. For example, to strengthen prayer, to seek God's guidance, to express grief, to seek deliverance or protection, to express repentance and return to God, to humble oneself, to express concern for God's work, to minister to the needs of others, to overcome temptation, and dedicate yourself to God and to express love and worship to Him. So he goes through all those in great, greater detail. I'm just listing them for you in my outline here. So fasting is to be done for those purposes. Perhaps you've had a prayer request that you have brought before the Lord and you're very earnest about it. You might fast for a meal. Instead of prepping that meal and eating it, you might pray instead of doing that. I don't know how you think about that, but I think it's interesting to challenge us on this. The Lord said, uh, when they take the bridegroom away, then what? They will fast. But how can they fast when the bridegroom is with them? He's using the illustration of a wedding, saying, look, when you're at a wedding, the last thing anybody is thinking about is fasting because they're thinking about celebrating. They're thinking about having the meal after the wedding ceremony, and it's all joyous and, and happy and everything. That's like when the Lord was with the disciples. But when he was taken away, he was killed on the cross. Imagine you see that sight on Friday. You think you're going to be very hungry? You think you're going to be fasting, perhaps? Probably. Praying, God, what's happening here? We thought he was going to bring redemption to Israel. The disciples on the road to Emmaus said. But now he's, and now this people are telling us he's raised from the dead again. They're all confused and grieving and, and sorrowful. They walked along the road to, to uh, Emmaus uh, 
that was where they were going, Emmaus. Did I say Damascus? Emmaus. And uh, they were sad. The Lord came up to them and said, Why, what kind of conversation is this as you walk and are sad? He's the one they're sad about coming up to join them. Kind of humorous. but um, So we, I've always thought that there's a, a hev- less heavy emphasis on fasting in the New Testament because we live in the age when that sign, that banner in the back is true. He is risen indeed. He's alive. You know, and we have a lot less reason to be sad and sorrowful than somebody who lived between Friday afternoon or Friday the whole day and Sunday morning, that first Sunday of the church, of before the church age, or last Sunday before the whatever, you get the point. Um, so he asked by way of application to this, uh, will you confess and repent of any fear of fasting? Will you actually fast? Sometime. You know, obviously he puts the caveats in there about your health and, you know, if you're hypoglycemic and all that, don't get yourself into a situation where we have to haul you off by an ambulance because you've been so spiritual that you're fasting too much. Um, But you get the point. Think about that. Then he gives another one, another discipline uh, besides fasting and besides stewardship, and that's silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. Silence and solitude explained. Voluntary and temporary abstention from speaking for spiritual goals. Outward silence during which you might read, pray, write, and so on. And that's really kind of focused on the silence part of it. I would say the solitude part is not just not speaking, but it's being alone, okay? Being alone, which assists you not speaking unless you're talking to yourself, which I guess we can permit that. But um, reasons to do this. Well, first of all, he says to follow Jesus' example. Do you remember the Gospels? He went away, stayed up in prayer all night to God. Or went away early in the morning to seek the face of God to pray. And, uh, of course, he was by himself uh, in the wilderness, except for the devil at the end when he came to tempt him. So following Jesus' example, uh, he says, and I put in quotes, to hear God's voice better. Now, what does that mean? I mean, he's maybe a little bit charismatic on that point, but to hear God's voice better means to understand and, and hear the word of God out of the Bible better. To, to allow your conscience to work on you, to think, to express worship to God in your silence and solitude, to express faith, to seek rescue for yourself or salvation to an, for another. Uh, silence and solitude is helpful to regain spiritual perspective, to seek God's will, and, and also to learn to practice to control your tongue, especially if you're a talker, you know. Just pause button it up for a minute, and uh, don't use so many words. So he gives some practical suggestions for this because some of us probably think, well, this is not really possible. I have kids at home, don't you know? What do I do about that? Um, So he says, take a minute retreat, a minute retreat, okay? Uh, practice some daily silence and solitude, and then it kind of gets bigger from there. Getting away once in a while, 
uh, have a special place that you can go to just sit and think or pray quietly. And then he suggests the practical responsibility or practical um, suggestion of trading off responsibilities. Look, I can't because I have to do X, Y, Z. Well, have your spouse do X, Y, Z today so you can have a time of quiet. And then you do X, Y, Z plus A, B, C that the other spouse has to do so that they can have their time of quiet tomorrow. Something like that. So again, straight up application. Are you going to try to do something about that uh, to have some time of silence and solitude? The, the world is a noisy place. And um, perhaps some of you feel like, oh, I have too much silence and solitude because I live by myself. That's, I understand that. <laughs> That's good. That's okay. Um, two others he gives. I'll just briefly mention them so we can finish this up today. Uh, the one in his 11th chapter is the discipline of journaling. Journaling. Um, and he explains it this way. A journal or a diary, if you will, is a place where you write down stuff. <laughs> I thought that was nice. A Christian journal is where you write down stuff about God's work in your life and other stuff. Okay, so you're giving, you're putting down your thoughts, you're putting them on paper, um, you know, mundane things and also God's work in your life. The value of it is that he says it helps in your self-understanding and your self-evaluation. It helps you express thoughts and feelings to the Lord. It assists you in remembering the Lord's work and his promises. Creates a spiritual heritage. Think about a child or grandchild who can pick up your spiritual journals if you know 25 to 50 years later and read them and be benefited by what happened in your life and what you learned you can monitor goals and priorities in your journal you can help to maintain the other above you know the other spiritual disciplines that we've talked about you know read my bible today prayed fasted whatever you know oh haven't fasted in months maybe i should spend some time you know, focusing on the Lord a little bit more. Very busy day today. Haven't been able to have any time away. Maybe that reminds you to come back to a spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. Um, so how do you do this? Well, you get something to write with and you write. So as I've told you before, often, not often, but I, when I get the opportunity, it's nice to be able to go with my Bible a legal pad and a pen somewhere and hide out, you know, so that nobody can find me. <laughs> so that I go somewhere where there's no phone, there's no computer, there's maybe a library at Washtenaw Community's campus or something, you know, and just hide out in one of the nooks there and, and uh, think and read and write and take notes and study for a Bible lesson or whatever. Um, and then the last one he gives is, uh, after journaling, is learning. Learning. <laughs> the Apostle Paul uh, was told, uh, it was either Felix or Festus, told him, your much learning has made you mad. It's driven you crazy. And Paul said, no, I'm not crazy. In fact, I'd like all of you to be like I am, except for these chains that I'm wearing. You know, be a Christian, in other words. Um, and so... An overemphasis on scholarship certainly can be bad. 
uh, but an over an underemphasis on it as well can be bad also. Balance is needed. You know, somebody said, look, in fact, what was I just, I was speaking to somebody. Oh, I was speaking to um, one of our friends from South Africa uh, just a couple of days, maybe last week, and they were saying this fellow came to him and he was telling him about their approach in their church plant, and one of their their kind of core tenets was we don't believe in seminary education or bi- formal Bible training, just Bible college, whatever, just self-study, because they've all gone wrong. And so they just kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, they just want you know, personal devotional Bible study and so on. <clears throat> Learning is for the wise and characterizes wise people, doesn't it? What happens to a wise person when you instruct him? The proverb says, brother, you know what I'm talking about in the Proverbs? When you instruct somebody who's wise, they get wiser still. But when you instruct a fool, what happens? They reject it. (laughs) Yeah, they reject it. So wisdom or learning is for the wise, and it characterizes wise people want to learn. One of the the great little things that you learn when you're in a high-level academia is you get, you get so focused on one specific area of study, but you should also, and they try to make sure that you recognize this, that you have to be humble because you don't know necessarily very much about what the next guy to you, the, your neighbor is working on. Like you're so drilled into this one specific area, and you have to be humble and say, look, I don't know much about that. I mean, one of the, benef- one of the good things to know how to say is, I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to learn. I'd have to grow uh, in that area. I'd have to research that and study it. So you, could, you should learn humility. Learning is essential for increased godliness. Isn't it? Brothers, add to your faith virtue and long-suffering and and brotherly kindness and love and all of those things that Peter talks about in uh, you know, Romans 12 talks about having your mind be renewed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Does that sound like you throw learning out? Man, there's so much good stuff to learn. I mean, just reading this book is learning, reading a good Christian book. So the question is... Will you be an intentional learner uh, or just to be an accidental learner? An accidental learner. One of the benefits of forcing yourself to like, take a class is you're saying, I am disciplining myself to learn. And it may be tough. You know? Teaching a Hebrew class in the fall, if anybody wants to join, uh, discipline yourself to learn. No, you don't want to learn Hebrew. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> um, but, you know, you... Learn a skill. Take a, something at the community college. That's kind of you know more of a mundane thing. But take a Bible class offered at the church or at a nearby college. Or say, I'm going to read this book, even if it's going to kill me. I'm going to read three pages a day or something. You know, I mean, three pages more than what you would have read if you hadn't done anything. And I'm telling you, just reading this took a long time, several pages a day, but it's good. You know. Even if you don't, and this is an interesting thing too, even if you don't agree with everything that's in here, guess what? You're thinking. You're thinking. And of course you need to have the, the, the discernment to know what's, what's good and what's not, not go crazy 
you know, thinking, oh, I've just found some new spiritual key that's going to solve everything. You know, that's not true, but uh, something that could be helpful. So will you be an intentional learner? And where and when are you going to start doing that? Learning, journaling, silence, solitude, fasting, stewardship, serving, evangelism, worship, prayer, and Bible intake. Those kinds of things need to mark our lives as Christian people. And uh, in the measure they do, you're going to be growing. I can tell as a pastor looking at people, you know, I pay attention. I try. I kind of know if you're pretty regular in your Bible or not, um, if you're regular in prayer or not, those sorts of things. And that's part of my responsibility as a shepherd. But um, maybe today, not my evaluation, but your evaluation of yourself, where you're at, and maybe one or two of these disciplines you need to beef up your practice and be a little more intentional and purposeful in what you're doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the kindness you have bestowed upon us today to have the freedom, the uh, peace, the time, the health, the minds to be able to consider the questions uh, such as these about spiritual disciplines or about tax exemption or about the reasons why we're here in church. And maybe it's a little bit of a smorgasbord today of different topics, but I pray that something or some things have... um, tickled the minds of your people here and will challenge them to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. He is worthy of any learning, worship, stewardship, any discipline at all that we can uh, apply to our lives to become more like him and to uh, be a blessing to those around us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.